If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number one for the world according to Zig Podcast for this March 12th, 2018. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where sometimes you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. It is uh, good to be back behind the uh, microphone. It has been uh, two months since our last edition of the World According to Zig podcast. When we last left you, that was not the intention to be gone for two months. To review... We left our old studios here in Southern California because our rent had inexplicably increased. And I thought we had a viable alternative that made more sense. And so we took a short break to transition. And on Super Bowl Sunday, we were all set to return, which I thought was a particularly good day because, one, it's Super Bowl Sunday and there's always something to talk about. Two, I'm a lifelong Philadelphia Eagles fan, and the Eagles were playing in the Super Bowl. And there were a bunch of other news items going on, as there always is in this era of Trump. So that was the plan. And unfortunately, uh, I found out that very day that our producer, Kevin, uh, his wife, her mom, passed away. And so this caused um, a delay, and we didn't know when to reschedule, and one thing after the next kept happening or not happening. And finally, we were able to reschedule for a Sunday, a couple Sundays after that, which happened to be the Sunday of the Los Angeles Open, formerly known as the Los Angeles Open PGA Tour event here in Southern California at Riviera Country Club, which I was attending because I had a, a media pass. I had gone there earlier in the week to do uh, an interview with a PGA Tour pro, and I ended up watching uh, Tiger Woods inside the ropes for about 10 holes, which was interesting. And I'm totally stunned by what he's done in the last couple of weeks. I'll talk about that a little bit later on in this hour. But uh, on my way to attending the Sunday final round, we did another podcast. This one we actually did. And it was, by my recollection, it was really pretty good. We had done, I think, three or I think we might even have done four hours. We did a special four-hour edition. And I was feeling okay about it. Okay, fine. The new new digs are all right. And uh, this looks like it might work. And, uh, you know, why don't, we'll probably end up doing this a couple times a month. And based upon the news, this will all be okay. And so I'm, I'm hanging out at the uh, Riviera Country Club and I'm wondering why it is that the podcast hasn't been uploaded yet. And Kevin informs me that we have a problem that his entire computer system has crashed. And uh, long story short, uh, everything was lost. Making matters worse, uh, we, we thought we could redo it that day. So I, I'm getting off the golf course at Riviera in the middle of the final round. And then literally as soon as I finally did get off the golf course, uh, Kevin realized that, no, the, the problem was much larger than first anticipated and that there's just no way to do this with the current computer system. So now he had to go through an entire process of 
of getting a new computer and everything that entails, and that took forever. And long story short, uh, we have now gone two months in between podcasts. And in Trump time, that's like at least two years. I mean, at least two years of news in the last two months. And so there's no possible way I'm going to be able to catch up on everything. I'll do my best in this hour number one news hour. We're going to do uh, three hours today. We've got an interview that's very old now, but will hopefully still be of some uh, interest to you with the author David Frum. That's in hour number two. He's the conservative who wrote the book Trumpocracy. And in hour number three, uh, I'm going to do an update, an important update on uh, the never-ending Penn State Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky saga. There's been some... Important things that have happened there, and I want to let you know in detail for the first time what's been going on behind the scenes in my never-ending quest that uh, to try to get the truth out, hopefully before the HBO Paterno movie airs, which is April 7th. And as we speak right now, there is a plan to do that. I am still skeptical that that's going to happen, but if it does happen, it could be... Rather huge, could also be rather disastrous, but uh, that's in keeping with my entire life, which is, which is the definition of frustration. The last couple of months since the last time I spoke to you have been as frustrating a time period as I have ever experienced in my life uh, on uh, numerous levels. And, you know, they say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, I, I'm too damn strong at this point. Uh, my, my life is the definition of frustration. Uh, I mean, it, it's just gotten to the point where... It's just flat out ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's absurd. Anything that can possibly go wrong will go wrong. And, uh, and I just don't know how much more I can take, but we're persevering and trying to do the best we possibly can. And, you know, I've got two young kids, and they don't seem to care about any of it, so that's, that makes things sometimes better, but oftentimes, you know, they're a pain in the ass too. So... They, <laughs> My five-year-old is definitely a source of even more frustration. And today I picked her up from kindergarten and one of her friends asked me whether or not I'm her grandfather. So, so my life is, my life is just awesome. It's, you know, th this is the kind of uh, optimism that uh, pretty much encapsulates my existence. You can't survive it. It's not possible. And your kids die too. <laughs> well, hopefully not that bad, but uh, you get, you get the point. All right. So. I'm going to try to re review as much as possible. It's impossible, literally, to do the last uh, two months. So I'm just going to basically go backwards in some of the biggest news stories that have occurred most recently. Uh, I am going to get to OJ, by the way, the big OJ special last night on uh, Fox, which I wrote about for Mediate. You can check out my column there at our website, freespeechbroadcasting.com. In fact, I urge you to go to freespeechbroadcasting.com and catch up on all of the the many columns that I've written for Mediate over the last two months, uh, which really does, I think, do a pretty good job of encapsulating most of what has occurred in the news over that time period. So if you've missed, hey, wonder what Zig's take on this was, there's a pretty good chance there's an article or a column that you can find at uh, freespeechbroadcasting.com. But uh, so let's start with Trump and the, the latest uh, Trump insanity and desensitization, which is continued. I predicted uh, from the very beginning of this uh, that we would all become very desensitized to what would normally be extraordinarily insane news stories that sooner or later would not seem to be that big of a deal and that would uh, really not even last a day in this incredibly shrinking news cycle era in which we live. And I think that prediction has been borne out 100%, and dangerously so. I, I feel it. I feel it even as a columnist. Uh, some, you know, I, I write about three times a week, which is a lot for a columnist, but I have a lot of opinions on a lot of things. And I, I'm finding it very difficult to get excited about writing about things that if they happened with any other president, <laughs> would be week-long news. I mean, let me just give you an example of something that happened in the last two months that I guarantee you have completely forgotten about. Completely forgotten about. We now know, unless you think that everything is fake news, which it's not, we now know that Donald Trump 
tried to fire special counsel Robert Mueller and failed. Now, right there, right there, books could be written about that one sentence. He tried to fire the special counsel investigating his campaign. And he failed because the person he ordered to do it refused to, properly so. And now we've learned that, oh, by the way, he tried to get that person to release a statement claiming that he did not order him to fire Mueller, which he did not do, again, properly so. So right there, right there, that is a news story that with any other president, every single American would know about it. We'd be talking about it every day. It would be maybe the biggest story of the year. Because, by the way, not only does it show that <laughs> he's nuts and that he's trying to obstruct justice in numerous ways and then therefore probably guilty of something really big, but it also shows that there's effectively at least a partial internal coup going on because we've got portions of his own administration that's not carrying out his orders. And justifiably so. And yet, my guess is at least 70% of the public has either forgotten or had no real knowledge of that story to begin with. And who benefits by that? Donald Trump, of course. So that's the level of insanity and desensitization that we're experiencing. We're seeing it also with regard to the, the many firings and resignations within the administration. I mean, just within the last week or so, Gary Cohn over tariffs and Hope Hicks. Can you imagine, folks? Now, we can say this all the time, but it bears repeating because it is so important. Can you imagine Hope Hicks, the president's incredibly close aide, although at 29 years old with no political experience, three years ago she was working for Ivanka Trump's fashion company. Now she's the, she's the White House communications director. So just the idea that she's in her position would be scandalous if, if a Democrat. On the right, we would be going crazy. We would be presuming that Hope Hicks was Hillary Clinton's lesbian lover. In all seriousness, right? If, if Hillary Clinton had hired a 29-year-old former model with no experience who's a super hottie named Hope Hicks as her White House communications director... We would all on the right, meaning we, meaning the big picture, the, the conservative media industrial complex, would all presume that she must be Hillary's lesbian lover. Forget about the fact that in the real world, she's apparently the lover of two Trump aides who have sexual harassment issues, if not worse. But that's, an, that's almost irrelevant to this. But can you imagine if Hillary had her lesbian lover, Hope Hicks, resign the day after she testified in the Russian meddling investigation. Yet, it's a non-story. It's amazing. It, it's utterly amazing because there's always so much that in the news media has such a short attention span, they move on and nothing ever leaves a bruise. And this is, you know, this is hardly happening in a vacuum. This is happening constantly on almost a weekly basis. And no one seems to care. That's what's really amazing. No one seems to care, you know. What difference at this point does it make? Yeah, that, that's what the Trumpists would say. <laughs> Taking a page from their favorite person, Hillary Clinton. The hypocrisy is astonishing. It's astonishing. And it's never ending. So... Two of the biggest stories of the last week, which I think actually are related in some ways, although on the surface they don't seem to have much of anything in common, are the alleged North Korean meeting, the meeting with the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, and Donald Trump, which supposedly is scheduled for some time in May, although there doesn't appear to be a time and a place that has been chosen as of yet, but it is in... in essence, it has been agreed to, supposedly, by both sides. And the tariffs, 
the tariff issues, the issue of putting tariffs, huge tariffs on steel and aluminum that Trump has decided to do basically unilaterally using a provision in the law, which is supposed to be about national security, even though he's made it clear from his own statements this is not about national security. It's why Gary Cohn resigned as his chief economic advisor. Nobody, nobody with any credibility believes that the tariffs are a good idea. And nobody with any credibility thinks that Trump agreeing to meet with Kim Jong-un without preconditions is a good idea. I mean, you know, look, you know, I realize that a lot of people who are never Trump conservatives get accused of, oh, you just don't want Trump to succeed. No, no, no. Be fan- it would be fantastic. Fantastic if somehow Donald Trump could eliminate the potential nuclear threat in North Korea. That would be fantastic. However, we're nowhere near doing that. And there's no evidence that we're anywhere near doing that. Yet Trump and his cult live in this world where if you say you're going to do it, it's basically the same as doing it. God, I would love to live in that world for like 15 minutes. If I could just tell my wife, yep, I'm going to do this. And that would be the same as actually doing it. And she accepted it as, oh, you did that. Fantastic, honey. Way to go. Wow. Wouldn't life be awesome? But that's the world Trump lives in. He can just say, we've reached an accord with North Korea. I'm going to meet with them and I'm going to solve the nuclear problem. And to his Trump cult, that's the same as doing it. Let's forget about the fact that so far, the only thing that's happened is a wet dream for Kim Jong-un. It's a wet dream. This is something that the North Koreans have never been able to accomplish before. They are now being perceived as being at the same level as the United States, and Un is being perceived as being the same level as the president of the United States. That's what he wants. He wants credibility. And effectively, so far, he's been forced to give up nothing in reality. And what's even worse, and of course the the Trump cult never believes any of this because they think it's all fake news, Uh, but if you have listened at all to how this decision went down, it's actually scarier than the actual decision itself. The decision itself is incredibly risky and I believe will not work out because I don't see Trump as this magic deal maker that his cult does. And I, I don't think he's even interested in a deal. But hey, look, I will say this. If there's anybody who can get inside the crazy, insane mind of Kim Jong-un, it's Donald Trump and Dennis Rodman working together. All right, let's be just clear about that. If anybody can do that and, and, and figure that puzzle out, knock yourself out. It, it's got to be Trump and Rodman working together. So I acknowledge that maybe <laughs> there is a, a one in 10, maybe even a one in eight chance something really good happens. However, <laughs> there's a better chance nothing happens, in which case Un has won, or even worse, Trump makes a really, really bad deal, which I think is actually a better chance of that than something great happening. But back to the issue of me not wanting this to work. No, 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 I'd be thrilled. Um, the problem is I don't believe that it's going to work. And the process of how we got here is frightening because here's the basics of what apparently happened. Apparently, last week, Trump was supposed to meet with the South Koreans on Friday. He somehow got wind on Thursday, late on Thursday, that they were in the building and apparently were carrying some offer. I don't even, I don't know for sure if he knew that part, but it, it seems to be part of what occurred here. Anyway, long story short, he brings them. He orders them to come in, I assume, into the Oval Office. And they tell him that they have information that Kim Jong-un would like to meet with him. Now, apparently, the South Koreans are thinking, this isn't going to happen. No president's going to agree to this. This is a ridiculous proposal. So they're like just doing this because they feel obligated to. 
Well, what does Trump do? Sure, let's do it. Make it happen. Let's go. Let's do it. Now, and those apparently were, that's a direct quote, apparently, from Trump. Let's do it. Tell him we'll do it. With, with no, no real details, no preconditions, no advisors being consulted. There, there's no ambassadors. No, the Secretary of State is out of the country. This is just Donald Trump himself deciding that on that moment, on this whim, with the cable networks obsessed with Stormy Daniels, he wants a win. He wants a, even if it's a, just a theoretical win, even if it's not even a win, frankly, I, I think this is a loss right now. This is a loss with the potential, I guess, of a long shot win down the road. But that's the way Trump's mind works. What's best for him today? That's all that matters. What's best today? And he wanted that headline. In fact, he even went into the press room and said, I hope you guys will give me credit for this. Credit for what? Credit for what? Giving Kim Jong-un credibility he doesn't deserve? The man's a killer. The man's a nut. He's been threatening our country with nuclear war. He's been firing missiles, attempting to hit other countries, including theoretically our own. What? What? Now, there's been all sorts of different stories coming out of the White House as to, okay, what are the ground rules here? The next day, Sarah Sanders, the press secretary, tried to clean it up, bring some... And by the way, when Sarah Sanders is the one bringing some semblance of sense to the situation, you know you got a problem. And then as soon as she did that, the White House said, no, 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 no. No, don't worry about this. There's not going to be any preconditions. We're going to do this thing. (laughs) My gut tells me this is never going to happen. Because... And it has nothing to do with any of the details of... Uh, of the story itself. It has to do with what we know about Trump. All right. This is Trump's MO. Give me the, de- the, the, the headline I want that day. I'm going to lose interest in it over time. And eventually somebody with a semblance of sense is going to catch his ear and convince him this is a bad idea. And then by May, people will have forgotten about it. That's the way he works. We've seen it before. We saw, remember when he announced on Twitter that day last year, he's banning transgenders from the military. Remember that? (laughs) There was all that fanfare, the big headlines. Wow. It never happened. Mainly because the military told him, no, we're not doing this. And by the time he had to actually go through the proper channels rather than a tweet, he had gotten his headline he lost interest. He'd move on to other things and realized maybe it was more trouble than it was worth. That's the way Trump is. So it's my guess and it's my hope that this meeting never actually takes place. And of course, you can always find an excuse not to meet with Kim Jong-un. Something, you know, easily could be come up with in order to justify, hey, uh, you know, they, they broke the agreement and we're not going to meet with them. That way Trump doesn't have to lose face. So I'm hopeful that I'm right about this one. I'm fairly confident that's never actually going to happen because, again, that's Trump's M.O. And we're seeing it similarly with the tariffs. What did he do with tariffs? Very similar to North Korea. No advisors even being in the loop. He just comes out with this declaration. My favorite part is that he ups the percentage on the steel tariff from 24% to 25% because he likes round numbers and it sounds stronger. <laughs> Not making this up, folks. Not making this up. It's it's quite amazing. Uh, the, 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 this and, and again, of course, his cult thinks this is all this is all fake news, right? It's all fake news. Well, you know. All I know is what's on the internet. Yeah, so and of course, we all know that I love the poorly educated. Yeah. So his poorly educated cult thinks, oh, wow, he's standing up for America. He's being a protectionist, just like he promised. This is what he promised us in the campaign. Well, nobody thinks this is a good idea. Nobody. I mean, literally nobody. When your chief economic advisor is resigning over it, that's a bad sign especially when you're a guy with no special expertise in this area. 
And many conservatives have thankfully come out and said, this is a really bad idea with potentially perilous economic consequences if we get in a trade war. So what's happened? Well, at first it looked like Trump might back off of it, that the normal Trump M.O. may take hold here. And that is that Trump gets tired of it and he gets convinced uh, to go in another direction. But that's not what really happened here, because apparently his ego was so invested in this. And he believes that this is something his base wants. And so he was going to give it to him how come hell or high water, which normally, by the way, would be an admirable characteristic, except when the idea is Looney Tunes and is actually going to hurt the very people that you think you're going to help. However, while Trump didn't back down totally, effectively, from what we can tell, the, the tariff plan has been largely eviscerated through exemptions, exemptions for Canada, exemptions for Mexico, apparently Australia and some other countries are going to get exemptions. And so once you have those, uh, um, you reach a certain threshold of loopholes, then a lot of this becomes much more of a paper tiger and the impact gets greatly diminished and the need for a trade war also is lessened. Now, we don't know exactly how it's going to go. Politically, by the way, I think this is a loser. Yeah, there'll be some people, and maybe we'll find out tomorrow in the, uh, the House special election in District 18 in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, there might be some people who are jazzed up because this is Trump being a protectionist, uh, make America great again, put America first, that kind of business, and, you know, and they just don't know any better. I, I, there might be some people in, in that camp, but here's what Trump's giving up in exchange for that, which again is classic Trump. Short-term, good headline for his cult. Long-term now, what happens if in the next two and a half years before the presidential election, the economy takes a turn south? And you know that the news, the news media is going to pick up on any negative economic news, as they always do when a Republican is in office. The stock market was already at all-time highs. It's gone down a little bit, partially because of the tariff issue. Came back again uh, on Friday. But the reality is there's a lot of room, there's a lot of statistical room for things to appear to get worse or maybe even get worse in the next two years. Well, now Trump has created a, an important narrative point for what caused that. He could have claimed the tax cuts caused economic revival or stimulus. I, I presume that they would be at least partially given credit for that. But now that's been erased because of the tariff issue. And it doesn't matter what reality is. Reality is reality. Reality means nothing in this day and age, unfortunately. Facts, logic, it's, it's all meaningless now. But the reality is that from a perception standpoint, anything that bad happens could be blamed on the tariffs, even if it really didn't have the negative impact that some had uh, feared that it might. So politically, I think this was a bad move. I think it's economically a bad move. We can only really hope that it's not disastrous on any front. And I do think that part of what was going on, maybe even with the tariffs too, was to distract from this Stormy Daniels story. Now, I find that weird and nonsensical. And I've never really been one. I realize that Trump does do things to distract us. I get that. There are some people who think everything's a distraction, which is not true. He's not, he's just not that smart. He's not playing eight-dimensional chess. I don't even think he's playing checkers. I think he's playing shoots and ladders on a good day. But I do think that sometimes, if only out of anger and ego and impulse, he does do things to change the subject. And it's clear that the Stormy Daniels story, the porn star that he clearly had an affair with, that his buddy, his lawyer, paid off to a tune of $130,000 just before the 2016 election, it's really bothering him. Now, is it bothering him because of Melania? 
That's possible. Certainly makes sense. But most people seem to think that Melania had already priced this in when she made this deal. This deal with the devil that she made. But, you know, it can't be good for her uh, self-esteem, her ego. You know, no, no woman likes to have this thrown in her face. And it's not just been Stormy Daniels, by the way. There's a, another woman by the name of Karen McDougal. The Karen McDougal story, and I wrote, I wrote, I've written a couple of columns about both of these situations, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. The Karen McDougal story, I think, is actually more interesting. And it's not gotten one one-hundredth of the coverage, mainly because Stormy Daniels is clearly doing things to keep her name out there. She's brilliantly keeping her name out there. And she's created this perception that there must be something more to her story than just an affair with a porn star, which, by the way, I can't believe we're even saying that. In other words, an affair with a porn star, when you're married and your wife is pregnant or just given birth, and you paid her $130,000, which was effectively a campaign contribution, illegal, during a presidential campaign, you would think that that would be enough for a story to be able to, you know, hold its own as a scandal. No, 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 no. Not in the era of Trump. So the reality is that Daniels has been creating this perception and her lawyer has been creating the perception that she's got something else. And that's why Trump is so dedicated to making sure she doesn't talk. She apparently has done an interview with 60 Minutes, which is scheduled to air this weekend. The Trump people bizarrely are threatening some sort of prior restraint of free speech against 60 Minutes, which is just wrong and strange and politically bizarre, again, unless she really has something. What could she have? At this point, what would she have that would really embarrass the president? It's hard to imagine. I mean, there's been all sorts of wild theories, but I've not seen any indication or logic that uh, that this is real. This feels to me like her doing a really good job of keeping her name out there and the and the Trump people doing a really bad job of killing the story. That's what it feels like. Maybe we'll know more if 60 Minutes actually airs the interview. Just today, she offered to give Trump back the $130,000 if he let her out of the non-disclosure agreement. Now, this maneuver a lot of people think this is like a checkmate on trump and i'm like why do you think this is a checkmate on trump he's just not he's just going to ignore it and to me frankly by making that offer isn't she at least strongly implying that she still is under the uh the power of the non-disclosure agreement that's what it feels like to me maybe maybe i'm wrong but it feels it feels like to me, by saying, hey, I'll give you, back, give you back your money if you let me out of the agreement, that means she's saying the agreement still holds when her lawyers are making the argument that the agreement does not hold because Trump never signed it. So, look, I, I don't know for sure what's going on there. I, I would certainly watch the interview on 60 Minutes to find out more, but I would have uh, very low expectations for what real information she would have that would be damaging to him at this point. Now, I mentioned the Karen McDougal story. That, to me, is more interesting for a couple of reasons. One, she's way prettier, way classier. Uh, by the way, she was dating Bruce Willis at the same time. Apparently, she was having an affair, what you would call an affair, I guess, with, with Donald Trump. She was. She's not apparently a porn actor. She's a Playboy model. So, you know, Playboy models tend to be a little classier and better looking than than most uh, porn uh, stars are. But that's not the real reason why I find the McDougal story interesting. Here's what's really interesting. Here, here's how they got McDougal to shut up. They didn't pay her directly for her story. In, in, well, in a way they did. The National Enquirer did Trump's dirty work on that one. This is what happened. They bought her story, the National Enquirer did and then purposely never ran it. It's what's called catch and kill in the tabloid industry. Now, you only do this for friends, right? So that's what, the National Enquirer, very closely tied to Donald Trump. They paid her, I think it was like $140,000, or maybe it was in that range. 
but they, they paid her for their, her story, which they claim now they didn't find credible. But they also, as part of the deal, put her on the cover of one of their other magazines and made her a columnist, even though she's supposedly not credible. That makes a lot of sense, right? No, here's what really happened. The National Enquirer is owned by a friend of Donald Trump. McDougal was a potential problem. They caught and killed her story. In exchange, she thought she got a great deal because she got some money and some exposure being on a, the cover of one of the National Enquirer's sister magazines. And she was going to be a columnist, although apparently they reneged on the columnist deal because they never published most of her columns. Now, those of you who um, are fans of Tiger Woods may recognize this situation because this is effectively the reverse of what happened with Tiger Woods. I'll never forget it. As long as I live, before the scandal hit with Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods did a magazine cover for Men's Health magazine without his shirt on. And I was like, what the fuck is this? What the fuck is this? Because, I mean, this is Tiger is still, he is a god, literally. I used to have the website TigerWoodsIsGod.com. So, so Tiger, you know, he doesn't need to be taking his shirt off for Men's Health magazine and exposing his workout secrets. And I, and I made a mental note of it. Okay, what the hell is going on here? Well, we would later find out, tragically, what was really going on here. Here's what really happened. The National Enquirer, owned by the same company that owns Men's Health magazine, had accumulated DNA proof that Tiger Woods had had an affair with a Jurgens waitress in the parking lot of a church. And in order to exchange that story, Tiger wanted the story killed, Tiger agreed to do the magazine cover and the inside story of his workout for Men's Health magazine. So it essentially was the same thing that the National Enquirer did with Karen McDougal, only in reverse. Interestingly, the National Enquirer then double-crossed Tiger because, you know, once he's done the magazine, what leverage does he have? He's already given up, you know, what he was going to give them. And it was the National Enquirer who, I believe, set Tiger up by, uh, and I think his mistress set Tiger up um, for that entire downfall in 2009. But that's another story for another day. So you can ch check out the column I wrote on Karen McDougal and why her story ought to matter at freespeechbroadcasting.com because had we known, had we known during the 2016 primary campaign that the National Enquirer really was an arm of the Trump campaign, I would like to think that would have mattered. I seriously would have liked to have thought that would matter. It would have put a totally different context on a lot of the stories that the National Enquirer came out that were very pro-Trump and anti-Ted Cruz and anti-other people who were running against Donald Trump, anti-Hillary. Not to mention, I think some people might have thought that was a bit unseemly and unethical and, frankly, maybe even illegal because you could make a very strong argument that the National Enquirer was making campaign contributions as a corporation to Donald Trump for president. But we didn't know any of that for, for sure. I talked a lot about you could find out what's really going on by reading the National Enquirer because of the fact that it was clear the Enquirer was on Team Trump. But I didn't even know to what extent they were on Team Trump. So check that out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. The, of course, one of the many problems with this whole affair situation, I couldn't really care that much about the affair. But man, oh man, the hip conservative media hypocrisy on this after we went after Bill Clinton for all those years has just been stunning. It really has just been amazing. And uh, and really, uh, I think it's it's going to come back to haunt us this week. I'm going to come out maybe tomorrow with a column where I've, I've spent a lot of time putting together a list of all the things that we used to be able to attack Democrats on that we no longer can use because we've sold out the Trump on them. And obviously infidelity and lying about it and paying people off during a campaign are several of them right there. But I think the list is up into the 80s. So make sure you keep an eye out uh, for that. And the, and the hypocrisy on the conservative media side has just been staggering. Now, with regard to Trump-Russia, there's always stuff leaking out. There's always new stories. 
I think there's been some interesting developments. I've written a couple of articles about that, specifically about Christopher Steele, the author of the so-called dossier. There was a very long profile of him in The New Yorker by Jane Mayer, who interestingly has emailed me a couple times since she published that uh, because she and I had a... <laughs> Got into it a bit of many years ago in my first documentary film about the uh, the making of the movie The Path to 9/11. Anyway, she she we had a good email conversation, but the, the important part is that she wrote this very very in depth profile of Christopher Steele, this former British spy, and it was very sympathetic, and uh, but I thought it was pretty convincing. I mean, I have always been very open to this narrative that Christopher Steele was simply being unfairly disparaged by those on the right because they need him to go down because they're you know anybody who is seen as a danger to Trump must be destroyed and that's what it feels like's going on there now that doesn't mean that everything in the dossier is true i think that there's clearly a lot in the dossier that is true and that's partially why trump is obsessed with it and that's partially why Trump's lackeys in the Congress have gone so far out of their way, specifically Devin Nunez with that bogus memo, to, de- to try to destroy him and to try to use uh, a very, um, I think, jaundiced view of what happened with that dossier to try to get the entire Mueller investigation invalidated. And I don't think they're going to be legally successful in that, but it doesn't matter. All they're trying to do is muddy the waters enough so that if Mueller comes back with something big, the base the cult will stay with him, which I think they've been successful in doing because, frankly, that's what the cult wants to do. A cult's going to cult. But I will say that with regard to this, you know, the infamous P-tape thing, that's the, you know, that's the part of the dossier that everyone wants to to talk about, the P-tape, the, the tape that allegedly Putin has of Trump in a Moscow hotel room during the 2013 Miss Universe pageant where he's got some prostitutes urinating on a bed and supposedly this is the big piece of leverage that Putin has over Trump. There's always been parts of that story that didn't make a lot of sense to me. And this week, and I wrote a column about it, I think, and this is this is purely a theory on my part, folks, okay? I don't know this to be 100% true, but it certainly makes sense. To me, one of the problems with, with combating the P-tape is, okay, how does that story get in the dossier if it's not true, right? That's one of those things too crazy to be made up. And according to the dossier, Steele had, I think, four different sources on this, although two of them might have been connected. So how do you have four different sources with this story that seems impossible to make up? Well, this week we finally got an explanation, and I wrote a column about it. Because I now think we have an explanation. I'm not saying this is 100% true, but we now, for the first time, have an explanation for how this story could be made up. And it's consistent with the idea that the P-tape is really just an urban legend. And I urge you to read it, because I don't have enough time to get into the great detail, but here's, here's the bottom line of it. A new book is out called Russian Roulette. In it, there is a, a details of a meeting between some Russians and Trump at the Miss USA pageant in 2013 in Las Vegas, where they take Trump to a Vegas strip show where there is a urination presentation. Now, why anybody would be into that, I have absolutely zero clue. But apparently, this is part of what this very risque strip club in Vegas does. Now, we don't know for sure that Trump and the Russians actually witnessed that presentation. But it doesn't take much imagination or understanding the way way rumors work to follow this line of logic. So these Russians, they're cultivating Trump. They take him to the strip club. There's this urination scene. And then when they report back... What do they say? Well, my God, Trump's a dunce. He's a complete buffoon. We took him to the strip club. My God, do we, you know, you, could, you should have seen him when, uh, when uh, the, uh, the strippers were urinating uh, all over this, uh, I think it was a professor that was in the, the skit that they were doing on stage. And so obviously that's something that would 
be remembered by people, right? You would not forget that. That's something that's a rumor that would easily get around within the circle of people within the know. And I realize you're probably thinking, well, these are spies. No, they're not spies. The people that were that Trump was dealing with first from Russia are basically they're related to the Miss Universe pageant. They're entertainers. They're, they're, they're talking to everybody. So once the urination portion of this story gets embedded in the rumor mill, all that has to happen is that to be connected to something that I think we can all wrap our heads around very easily, which is that while in Russia, Trump probably did partake in some prostitutes during the Miss Universe pageant. And so basically you have a conflation of two, by the way, terrible stories, two stories that normally would destroy a political career. You put them together and then you add in this idea that Russia's taping everything and, you know, they've got uh, they've got uh, they've got everyone compromised, which is possible. I mean, some of this is possibly true. I'm just saying that there is now a logical explanation for how the P tape got into the dossier without there actually being a P tape. All right. That's all I'm saying. Again, check more out more of that story out of free speech broadcasting. Dot com. One other thing on Putin. I watched the Megyn Kelly interview. They entitled this thing uh, Confronting Putin. Now, how I don't know how anyone takes Megyn Kelly seriously right now with a with a Putin interview. I mean, how do you go from, you know, D-list Me Too guests on her morning show to interviewing Vladimir Putin from the Kremlin? I have no idea. Now, to her credit, she did a halfway decent job, but I would not have called this interview confronting Putin. I would have called this amusing Putin. That was basically what the interview was. Megyn Kelly amusing Putin. And um, boy, uh, Putin comes off as a scary motherfucker to me. Scary not just because uh, he clearly (laughs) has no qualms about lying. He clearly uh, has uh, very strong designs on... I don't know if you would call it world domination, but certainly uh, dominating Russia and beyond. He's clearly a dictator, but he's also clearly very smart. He was very smart in that interview. And I kept thinking, oh, my God, can you imagine if Putin ever got Trump in a summit situation? Oh, my gosh. I mean, by lunchtime, Putin would have retaken Alaska for sure. By, by lunchtime. In fact, it might not even take to lunch for, for Putin to retake Alaska from Trump. And Trump, by the way, would be thinking he made a fantastic deal for a couple of magic beans. Uh, I mean, that, that's how bad it would be. Interestingly, Megyn Kelly said that she thinks that Putin has something on Trump, but it's not the dossier, which, of course, means to her that probably means she, does, she also doesn't believe in the P-tape. But uh, I found that interesting. I'm not saying that she has any inside information, but when you sit across from somebody, you know, women's intuition, whatever, I, I give that a little bit, maybe a two or three on a 10 scale of credibility with regard to maybe there's something there. Certainly Trump's behavior is consistent. That's what I keep getting back to. To me, it's not even about Russian collusion anymore. It's about, do we have a president who's compromised by Putin and Russia? That's what I want to know. Do we have a president who's compromised or not? And there's, it's impossible to find evidence that he's not compromised. Now, does that prove he's not, that he's compromised? No. In fact, you know, with any other rational human being, and one of the most difficult things about interpreting the Trump-Russia story is that You can't get into Trump's mind because he's not a rational, logical person. A normal, rational, logical person that's reached that level in life, you could interpret their actions through that prism of logic. You can't do that with Trump. So a rational, logical person at this point would have done something against Russia or Putin simply just to prove that they weren't compromised. But Trump hasn't even done that, which is really amazing and maybe even who knows could be a theory theoretically a sign that maybe he's not really compromised but that's really what i want to know and i did find it very interesting and quite funny rather hilarious really if you you get a chance check out the uh the opening skit on saturday night live this past week because they combined the bachelor 
and Robert Mueller's investigation. And you got to see it to fully understand it, but it makes perfect sense because basically Robert Mueller is telling the, the girl, Becca, who got dumped on The Bachelor after being uh, engaged to Ari, The Bachelor. And I, I'm ashamed to say I know all this because I watch it with my wife uh, on a regular basis. But she, Robert Mueller is telling Becca that he's really sorry that uh, he's no longer committed to collusion, uh, that uh, he's much more into obstruction now. <laughs> and the kicker of the whole thing is that she says, so that's it? He's just going to be president? We have to wait for two years to get rid of him? And Robert Mueller's character says, well, actually, it's probably six years, <laughs> which, is, which might really be true considering the lack of any real star candidate on the Democratic side. But the important point of that part of that is, one, it was funny, but two, even Saturday Night Live, which has been very, very bullish on Robert Mueller's investigation, seems to be lowering expectations and trying to brace for the worst in their minds that uh, we might not end up with a situation where Mueller really has the goods on Trump. He's going to have the goods on a lot of other people, but maybe he doesn't have it on Trump and maybe the standards are just too high. I just don't know. I really don't. Uh, at this point, I, 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 I'm pretty much where I have been for a long time. Something bad happened. There's a cover up. There's way too much lying. To what extent it happened, I do not know. But I do not believe that Mueller's going to have enough to force Republicans to get rid of Donald Trump. And by the time if the, if the Democrats take the House, I don't believe anybody has an incentive next year to get rid of Donald Trump. Nobody. Democrats won't. Republicans won't. The media won't. So when no one in power has an incentive for something to happen, it doesn't tend to happen. So that's where I am right now. Speaking of uh, the, the House and Tuesday's special election, the conventional wisdom as of right now seems to be that the Democrats are going to pull an upset in District 18 in the special election there. And this is a bellwether for what's going to happen in November. I disagree, actually, on both fronts. I'm an you know I'm a uh, anti-conventional wisdom guy anyway. I I contend I I I'm usually and tend uh, to be somebody who does not conform. I'm a non-conformist. I'm a contrarian. Uh, however, uh, it's mostly just a gut instinct. I I I pretend to have no special knowledge whatsoever about what's going to happen tomorrow, except uh, when all of a sudden. Uh, everyone's saying one thing's going to happen and there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence backing it up. I presume that that's not true. So if I had to guess, and it's purely a guess, I think that the Republican will win by a small margin tomorrow. Regardless, I'm not sure it's a bellwether because I think that special elections are, are just that. They're special. They're unique. It, you cannot predict the same type of turnout that will occur in November. But it's, it, you know, I'm not saying it's completely irrelevant either. Let's put it this way. If Democrats win that Republican seat, that is not a good sign for Republicans. That's clear. Um, but I'm not sure that that's what's really going to happen, uh, even though that right now is the conventional wisdom. Uh, let's see, a couple other things that I wanted to mention before this uh, first hour was up. The um, the gun issue. Obviously, there was a massive school shooting in Florida since the last uh, podcast that we did. I wrote a couple of columns about that, and specifically the absurd conspiracy theory that some of these kids were crisis actors that some of the right wing media latched onto. My wife even bought into this without any evidence because she saw it on Facebook. I wrote a rather uh, <laughs> provocative column about that, which you can check out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. I also did an interview with Al Jazeera Television out of London about this issue, which aired over the weekend uh, for a show called The Listening Post. So if you check, if you, if you search YouTube for Al Jazeera, The Listening Post, their most recent episode has an interview with me about this and how the media coverage of that shooting was perhaps different than some others in the past. Uh, you can check that out on uh, YouTube. The Oscars, of course, occurred since the last time we spoke. The ratings were horrendous. Donald Trump is actually right about part of why that is. One, it's because no one's watching the movies. The movie industry is in big trouble, especially among Oscar-type movies, you know, movies that actually have a plot as opposed to just blowing crap up. Uh, but also, there's no stars. And, and, and the stars that there are, 
didn't show up for the Oscars, whether they were afraid of getting me too or not, I don't know. But I mean, there, there was an incredible, incredible dearth of star power at the Oscars. I thought Jimmy Kimmel was boring as hell, mainly because he was bowing to me too for the entire uh, first portion of the program. And, and then of course there was the great irony that in this year of me too, Kobe Bryant wins an Oscar. How about that? How hilarious is that? I mean, that's just, oh, come on. It's just flat out ridiculous. I mean, I mean, I loved the short animated film that he won the Oscar for, which was his goodbye poem to basketball. The poem was amazing. The film itself was great. I guess he was technically a producer on it, so he got to get an Oscar and get up on stage. But here's a guy, and I don't know whether he was guilty or not, but in this Me Too era, here's a guy who was criminally charged with rape and paid off his accuser to a huge amount of money. And in the agreement, in the agreement states, I don't know the exact language, but it's clear from the agreement he's that she is not absolving him of guilt. Okay, so this was not an exoneration situation. This was not just a few bucks to go away. This was a situation where he effectively paid off his accuser to avoid a trial. That's really what happened. Again, I don't know if he's guilty. I do know, though, that a lot of other people with far less against them have had their careers destroyed in this Me Too era. Kevin Spacey's never even been charged with anything. He wouldn't have been allowed in the building. <laughs> He's a great actor. Here, Kobe Bryant is hoisting an Oscar. What a world we're living in, folks. Uh, and finally, um, Tiger Woods. Which I, I don't really want to segue from Kobe Bryant to Tiger Woods, although there are some similarities in different ways. Uh, but obviously, I've been very connected to Tiger Woods my uh most of my adult life. I mean, I've been a massive Tiger Woods fan since like 1994 or five. I started the first church of Tiger Woods via the website, tigerwoodsisgod.com in 2000, just before he went on his incredible run. Cause I knew that was, what was going to happen. And that became world famous. Then after the scandal, I uh, heckled Tiger Woods at the first round of the 2010 uh, U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, which got written about in the back page of Sports Illustrated. And my daughter, my five-year-old daughter, knows Tiger Woods as the man who broke daddy's heart. That's how she knows him. Uh, I still have autographed photos of him uh, in my office, and she's, of course, asked about him. And her mom told her that's the man who broke daddy's heart, which is probably the best way to describe it, because he did break my heart. And, of course, I've been very interested in what would happen with Tiger as far as some sort of comeback. In 2014, I wrote a cover story for the Louisville Weekly Magazine newspaper uh, because the PGA Championship was in Louisville, and I was there for it with my good friends, the Yarmouths, John Yarmouth, the congressman from Louisville, who's uh, also a golfer and a member at uh, Valhalla, where they were holding the tournament. Anyway, I, I wrote a cover story that week burying Tiger Woods. Literally, we put, a, we put him in a casket because uh, his career was over, in my view. And that prediction turned out to be pretty darn right for 2015, 2016, 2017. And now, after back fusion surgery, what's happened in the last few weeks is unbelievable. It's, it's literally unbelievable. I, I, I've already mentioned that... Uh, Four weeks ago, I followed Tiger Woods for 10 holes at Riviera and was not impressed. And that, by the way, was not even the worst he played in those two days. His last nine holes of that tournament, he looked even worse. And, I, you know, I was willing to say, look, he's just coming back. It's, there's a learning curve. You've got to learn a new swing and get back into the, the, the ways of playing tournament golf, which is very, very different than practicing. So I was willing to be patient, but it just never, it did not feel to me at all like, wow, this was an awakening giant who was all of a sudden going to return to past glories. And even last week or two weeks ago when he, um, you know, finished uh, by 12th at the Honda in Florida, I was like, eh, this doesn't feel, this, this feels like, you know, maybe one, that maybe might be the best we're going to get. Like, you know, if everything is perfect, he can contend, but not really contend. 
And then this week, on a course he's never played before, that's not even really in his wheelhouse, at least it doesn't seem like it's in his wheelhouse, at least past versions of Tiger Woods, he damn near wins the tournament. Now, let's be clear, though. I mean, I realize that the news media is is basically masturbating, literally, to Tiger because their jobs depend on it. The golf media is the golf media is more dependent on Tiger Woods than the conservative media is on Donald Trump. And there's actually a very similar relationship, except for the fact that Tiger might actually be really good instead of just a total fraud. Now, it might not just be all potential like it is with Trump, uh, but there's a very similar relationship. And you know, so I get why the, the media is all excited. I was excited. I mean, I even found myself rooting for him, which my wife gave me a lot of shit for. Uh, my daughter even was confused by. And it's mainly because everyone loves a redemption story, right? I mean, to see whether or not a human being could come back from the depths where Tiger was even just a year ago after that DUI and never think he was even going to be able to play again, that's a great story. And it just as a human being, you want to root for that story. Plus, Tiger seems different to me. He really does. I mean, I don't believe people change all that much. But he does seem different. And uh, and so it was great to see. I'm still a little skeptical, though, whether or not all of a sudden we're going to see old Tiger. Uh, you know, yesterday he needed a birdie on the last hole to tie, which means, you know, you let it all hang out, especially when you're Tiger Woods, you're worth uh, several hundred million dollars. You don't care about third or fourth place. It doesn't matter. So it's first place or nothing. So it's birdie or nothing. And he laid back off the tee. He hit his second shot in the middle of the green, way short of the pin, as as lacking in aggression as you could possibly have. And then he leaves the putt that would have tied well short. And then, worst of all, he walks off the green with a big smile on his face. I'm like, what the fuck is that? That's not Tiger. Who took Tiger Woods? Where's Tiger? Because that is not the way the old Tiger would have reacted. So I guess you got to take the good with the bad. And then finally, um, I got to mention O.J. Simpson because of what happened with Fox uh, yesterday because I'm intimately involved with that story if you've followed my career at all. I explain it all in a column, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. And also at freespeechbroadcasting.com, here's the most important part. Here's the part that you're going to find very fascinating. So Fox did two hours last night of an an interview that was done in 2006 with O.J. Simpson by Judith Regan, who was at the time a a big titan in the publishing world. And this was billed as O.J. Simpson's confession. And actually, it really was a confession, even though what he said was bullshit. He's not telling the truth about what actually happened. But he did effectively confess to killing two people. And part of the reason I'm, I'm very close to the story is that I, I once dated, fairly seriously, Kim Goldman, the sister of Ron Goldman, one of the two people that O.J. killed that night back in 1994. Well, because of that connection, because, and also because you know, I was very into the story like everybody else, when this story first broke in 2006, I was all over it. I think, In fact, I'm pretty sure I broke the story locally on KFI in Los Angeles that this book, if I did it, and this interview with Judith Regan was going down, and I was one of those leading the charge to stop it. Well, we did stop it. It didn't happen because Fox chickened out. So now 12 years later, they're airing this thing. But they're not really telling you how we got here. So I, in my column, tell you how we got here, because it's a very different narrative. And part of that narrative, and this is the part you're going to want to listen to, if you go to the column or if you just go to freespeechbroadcasting.com in the story section, there's a link to an interview that Judith Regan did with me three years after this story went down. In 2009, she invited me on her show because of my movie, The Media Malpractice. And me being me, and with a long memory and not being very forgiving, I went in there for one reason and one reason only. I I didn't really care about promoting my movie to Judith Regan because I knew her audience was small and liberal. But I did know that it would be a great opportunity to finally confront her about what the fuck she had done by paying O.J. Simpson in a way that could get around the Goldman's civil judgment against him which still pisses me off to this day and which Fox did not uh, cop to last night at all. In fact, they basically pretended that none of that ever happened. Well, you got to listen to this audio. I guarantee you, if you start at the 830 mark of this audio, you will not hear a more intense hatred that two people have for each other 
on a big-time radio show without any shouting whatsoever. How we never shouted at each other, I don't know. But it is about, uh, I'd say, 12 minutes of pure, unadulterated hatred <laughs> between Judith Regan and myself. And then also check out the column because that'll further explain uh, how it is we got here and what Fox did not bother to tell you last night because the truth here is far, far messier than they want you to believe. And Judith Regan is effectively, here's what Judith Regan is. She uh, was O.J. Simpson's accomplice in a bank robbery back in 2006 that failed. And now, 12 years later, she's trying to pretend that she's, she's uh, you know, the good guy by, uh, you know, ratting out her accomplice. And oh, by the way, I'm sure getting paid a lot of money, which she now needs because she lost her job uh, in order to do so. So she's no good guy here. Let's just be clear about that. So check that out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. That's our number two. Make sure you check out our number two. Wait a minute. That's our number one. Let's get that clear. That's our number one. Our number two is an interview with David from our number three is an update on the, uh, the very important update on the Penn State Jerry, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky story and my efforts to get the truth out. So make sure you pay attention to all that. And as always, I only ask two things of you. Number one, please share this via social media, Facebook, Twitter, what have you. And number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, do yourself a favor and pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.